there's a huge need across electricity operators to know where assets are going to connect in order to inform that future investment planning. Where's the network going to be upgraded and when? That's something that we're really keen to engage with more utilities on, both in the UK, but also outside in Europe, in Asia, in the US. We see a lot of these problems being replicated there. Massive grid constraints, difficulty planning where connections are going to appear in the future. And there's a lot that can be done around using collaborative tools. Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. This week, I am revisiting and building on a former recording that I did with Lily Cairns-Haler, who's co-founder and head of product at Advanced Infrastructure here in the UK. Lily, welcome back. Uh, we are going to be talking about how advanced infrastructure is applying data and analytics uh, to energy transition projects and, and really looking at how they can help great partnerships form between, well, in this case, we're going to talk about public sector and the various stakeholders, whether it's industrial or, or other that they're engaged with. So great to have you back and uh, looking forward to getting into this. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. It's really great to be here. So um, for those who didn't yet, and I hope you'll do your homework and go back and listen to that first episode, but for those who didn't hear the first podcast recording, which I think is a good 18 months ago, Lily, do you think you could just give a bit of a background to you, uh, how you came to co-found Advanced Infrastructure, and just give us a bit of an intro of how you found yourself at this point in time? So I'm the head of product and one of the co-founders at Advanced Infrastructure. Um, me and my other two co-founders came together about three years ago. Um, and what really united us was this shared frustration that the energy transition and energy transition projects shouldn't be blocked by things as simple as data. So data collection, data understanding and collaboration, that those are really the bedrocks of sort of any energy transition project. And it shouldn't be trying to set that up that delays the start of a project. It should be the far more complicated and sophisticated work that takes up the time. But what we saw three years ago was that that really wasn't happening and that project after project was either being delayed or cancelled um, because of these really basic issues. And what was your background before that? Again, just as a reminder to those who, or reminder, but also a bit of info for those who didn't hear that first episode. So my background has been in startups and tech, um, looking at data and analytics across a couple of different sectors before I moved into the energy sector. So not not always in the climate space then. So tell me what was that moment in time? Because I feel like everybody that has come into decarbonisation or climate issues in the last five or eight years or so, there was a moment when something clicked and changed. Do you, is there a moment that that kind of speaks to you in that way? It was shortly before we founded the company and I was working on a smart local energy system demonstrator, uh, I think funded by Innovate UK through PIFA. Um, we were working across heat, transport and generation um, across a local region and bringing in, it must have been at least half a dozen different stakeholders. And it was a really challenging and dynamic project, but you could really see the, the potential for different stakeholders to come together and have a real impact in changing a, a local area and changing the landscape. And it was something that I found really motivating. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. 
Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. What we're going to talk about today is, is kind of a fast forward a few years, but it, but exactly that issue of how do councils or local governments work well with the stakeholders around them so that we can see these big step changes in, in the energy transition. So let's have a look. We, we decided uh, before we came on air or in our prep call that we were going to focus on this particular project that you guys are engaged with called Project Resop. I wonder whether you could just give a little bit of the background to that. And then what we'll do is sort of take a step back and look at what are the barriers for whether it's councils or industrials or, or other parties in these sorts of projects that can either delay or, or cause challenges to kicking off uh, a sizable project. But but let's give the, the background first. So, so what is Project Resop? So first, to give a bit of background to what we're bringing to the project, the, this sort of challenge I talked about, data access and, and collaboration, what we ended up designing as a solution to that was a SaaS-based solution. So a SaaS solution to what had traditionally been a consultancy-led initiative. These energy transition projects traditionally are consultancy-led. But if we're going to transition 300-plus local authorities, place hundreds of thousands of assets, we need a more scalable solution. So what we designed was a platform called Local Area Energy Planner Plus, um, which is a, a geospatial piece of software. And that basically just means where is the stuff and where should you put the stuff if you were to put geospatial in layman's terms. And what we use that to do is to help many different organizations understand what their current baseline is in their area or across their buildings and look at options to either site heat technologies, so heat pumps, district heating, transport, EV charge points, or, or really any number of different initiatives, retrofit being one that's really important. And it's that solution, Leap Plus, that we're deploying as part of Project RESOP. Apologies for all the acronyms, um, but RESOP stands for Regional Energy System Optimization and Planning. And it's a network innovation allowance being driven forward by Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks. And it brings in ourselves as the mapping tool provider and three different local authorities, Dundee City Council, Perth and Kinross and Oxfordshire County Council as well as Consultants Arab, to really bring together as many stakeholders as we can um, to, to try, test and drive how we can do local area energy planning in a more collaborative way that's more cloud-based and that's digital. Okay. And then for those um, who either do know the UK or don't, I, I guess there's kind of an interesting point there in that this is taking into, into, the, into the group uh, councils that are not all in the same <laughs> ge geography. So obviously Oxfordshire is, is some distance, uh, at least in UK terms, from the Scottish entities that you manage. So how, how does that work in, in, this, in, this, in the scope of this project? What's been really interesting in this project is the way we've been able to bring in lots of different local stakeholders and lots of different types of local authorities. So we've got rural, we've got urban, we've got combined authorities. And we've got really a whole range of stakeholders within that. We've got heat and waste plants. We've got large industrials, huge energy consumers, and a variety of different sorts of resident groups, all of whom need to be consulted in these sorts of energy transition projects. 
And what's been really valuable is to have that slice, that cross-section of local authorities from different areas, as you say. And the thing that kind of ties it all together is across all these three authorities, the network operator and the gas network operator are the same. So Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks and SGN gas network operator are supplying all of the regions, which has helped bring it together in quite a nice way. Okay, well, let's then take a step back. We've got that background to the project, but let's sort of imagine you're now some months before that project has even coalesced. What, What are often the barriers for clients, whether they are councils or utilities, in actually trying to deploy or or even get their hands around what an energy transition project might look, feel like, what its targets might be. So sometime before Project Resop, there are all these motivated parties, but yeah, what were those barriers that they were initially facing? I think we really can't underestimate and, and under sort of emphasize the scale of the challenge that there is for an energy transition that's fair, that's equitable, and that really considers the energy system as a whole system transformation. And, and for those who don't know the term, but whole system can mean many things, but effectively it means bringing in gas, water, electricity, residents, and a range of stakeholders to really cover a fair spread of the entire system. And the challenges are enormous. There are many, but if we were to sort of split it into the three core ones, I would say that's funding, first and foremost. You can't really uh, get around that one. The next would be collaboration. I mean, we're dealing with stakeholder groups and, and partners that come from very different backgrounds. The language spoken by a, a network operator is radically different to a local authority. And then your third cluster of problem would be around site identification and, and triaging those sites. So that that's a process that can involve either scanning a whole region to look for areas that might be best suited to on-street EV infrastructure, charge points, essentially, or it might mean other sorts of feasibility assessments. And those can take months and months and months if you don't have the right sort of data and collaborators on board. So those are the three kind of buckets of core challenges that we, we seek to address. And so how do you and the team at Advanced Infrastructure play into this? You know, if, I remember when we were having a, a chat about this episode, one of the things you were saying is that it's, it's all, it's, well, it's not simple work, but it's simple in the sense the kickoff is how to prioritise your word, how to triage what what is needed, but also what is possible. So how do you do that? So what we do is we bring in the data that's needed to do that sort of site identification, that that. Uh, cost-benefit analysis assessment and to bring in the data from all those different stakeholders into a common digital workspace. So a place where you can invite your large local energy consumers to to log in, view data that's relevant to them and contribute their thoughts on their decarbonisation initiatives. Same for local residents, same for your gas network operator, same for your electricity network operator. Bringing everyone to that common digital workspace can rapidly help alleviate some of those early blockers that you have around data access and and site selection. And that's the the simple summary. Obviously, collecting the data, building it, that's an entirely different sort of kettle of fish. But that's the, the starting point that we operate from is getting everything in one place. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about these these challenges that you've you've mentioned a little bit more. The collaboration piece is one that really interests me because just in our own decarb connect world, I would say in the last six to eight months, six months even really, collaboration and partnerships really has been this just more and more 
where the concern, where the opportunity, where the excitement has been. So how, what, yeah, what's the, what is this SaaS environment that enables a bit more collaboration? And as much as you can on an audio podcast, can you, can you kind of give a bit of a description of if I'm an industrial, if I'm a utility, if I'm a council, if I'm one of these stakeholders, what is it that I'm able to see and and access and, and how does that simplify my world? So I mentioned earlier the sort of basic summary of geo planning and what it is basically translates to where is it and where should I put it? And that means that when you log in, what you first see is a map, map of your local area and several hundred different data layers around network constraints, building stock, building fabric, energy demand, uh, network topologies for gas, for water, for electricity. And that's data that you can overlay onto the map. You can filter down to specific regions. You can look at where they intersect with one another. And you can then use that to build up slightly more complex queries and analysis around what would happen if I did this or what's my total capacity. So, for example, across my council-owned buildings or my corporate-owned buildings, what's the total potential for rooftop PV? would be a typical sort of query that users can input and pull out of the platform. And so in in practical terms, they they are looking at this obviously in their own locations, their own uh, their own sites. How how are you involved in sort of bringing them together for the for the discussions for the kind of decision making around that that information and that data? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, Project Resop, with there, we were brought in by the electricity network operator, but we've also brought in the gas network operator, the water network operator, and quite a variety of, of local authorities or municipalities that can come in. Um, and we're, we're really trying to drive forward that type of engagement, and not just with those core stakeholders, but also with the wider body of of stakeholders, so local residents, local large energy consumers, local corporates, local industrials, all of them really need to be brought in to consult and engage on a dialogue around what is the energy transition going to look like for this local area? Because there's a lot of choice and that that really needs to take account of local needs and place-based considerations. I, w- I was struck in our in our prep call by something else you said as well because I think I had made some assumption that oh you must be doing consulting as well as this uh, SaaS based approach and you were quite you know quite firm that that was actually specifically what you were not you know that that's not the goal can you speak to that a little bit more like why was it so important to you that that it didn't just become you know just another consulting product fundamentally the energy transition cannot be driven by consultancy alone. There simply aren't enough consultants to do that. Whilst it might be fantastic to have a skilled organization that can guide either a corporate or a municipality through the process, there isn't enough financing, there isn't enough resource. Even if you had all the money in the world, there aren't enough consultants and there's definitely not all the money in the world to drive the process forwards that way. So there's going to need to be really quite a radical shift compared to how energy transition projects and early demonstrators have operated, which have been very consultancy-led into a a process where we have software applications and data-on-demand services that enable certainly the feasibility aspect of projects and perhaps some of the implementation to go ahead before consultants come in later on to add value really where the modeling becomes too complex for automation or too complex for a software solution. 
What we want to do is empower organizations to drive forward planning themselves to keep that cost down and to really unblock uh, issues that don't need the skills of a consultant to come in and solve that are maybe not actually the best use of a consultant's time. But then perhaps to set them up for a, a kind of more sophisticated conversation when that level of consultancy would have benefit. Exactly. It's always better to bring someone in once you've got a rough idea of what your local area looks like and what different decarbonisation pathways you might want to take, either as a business or as a municipality. Okay. Well, next next question or, or kind of area discussion. Um, I remember, again, in our prep call, you, you said something that really has stuck with me, actually, and I I've been uh, I've been shamelessly using this phrase a lot ever since, which is awareness follows money. I and I, what we were doing was talking about the nature of incentives that are obviously intended as a major benefit, a major boost, but that can sometimes also hinder the right kind of focus. I wonder, can you just speak to that a little bit? What was it that you were really getting at um, when we talked about that, and, and why is it significant in this case? It's very true that awareness around what is feasible within local energy planning or an energy transition very much follows financing where it's available. And that's brilliant in some places, but it can be a real problem, particularly if you want to look at a whole systems transition. So when you have technology-specific funding, say public funding, like the on-street residential charge point fund or the, its replacer, the, the Levi fund, that drives an enormous amount of resource into citing EV charge points, which is brilliant. We need 300,000 EV charge points by 2030, and we've got about 40,000 now. We need to drive resource there. But that resource is, is focused in one technology area, whereas if we're going to have a, a fair, equitable transition, one that takes account of the strategic opportunities there are around many different technology vectors, we need that awareness to go beyond single technologies and beyond single funding streams. And there is no funding stream at the moment for a sort of whole systems approach. That approach has to be driven by organizations themselves. And that's really difficult to do when there isn't a funding stream available, either private or public. Okay. All right. Well, something else that's been in the news uh, recently, a fair amount, and again, that we had touched on in our prep calls, is, is this whole issue of grid constraints, which I suppose... I don't know why it sort of seems to get such a secondary focus from people because obviously our our ability to tap into the the right sources of energy, the right sources of clean energy are obviously essential. But what's the reality of what you are seeing through either Resop or the other work that you're doing? How how are grid constraints really impacting the energy transition? I don't think again it could be underestimated how much of a challenge grid constraints is going to be. Our energy system fundamentally was designed for large-scale generators to be connected at the transmission network, not at distribution. But what we're seeing now is we're moving from dozens of large-scale generation projects to hundreds of thousands of assets being connected in people's homes, on streets, and, and from businesses. And that causes an enormous problem because the distribution network wasn't built to handle it. Fundamentally, there is enough power in the country but you've got to have enough capacity in the cables and the substations to distribute that power. And what that means in practice for, for businesses and for municipalities and occasionally residents as well, is you'll find that you've identified 
your, your strategy. You've come up with what you're going to do. You're going to put in a heat network. You're going to put in charge points. And then you come to doing an application to your network operator. And it comes back with a whole load of red tape. The network's constrained. It's going to take years for there to be investment to improve it. And that can knock on to projects getting cancelled. And in our experience, around 30 to 40% of all energy projects get cancelled after that DNO, the distribution network operator's response comes back, either because the cost to connect is too high or the time delay is too much and it renders the project non-viable. Now, it's really easy to sort of point the blame at network operators and say, oh, you should be making their making capacity available and you should be upgrading the network. But the reality is it's billions and billions of pounds that's going to be needed to upgrade that network over the next several decades. And we've got to find a, an optimum balance that takes account of the evident need to connect low carbon technologies to the network whilst balancing the, the, the investment that's needed to upgrade the network. So, for example, one of the things we're doing through Project Resop is working with SSEN, Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks, to make that constraint data more transparent and available to users of our platform so that they can simulate what would happen if I added these charge points, what would happen if I added these heat pumps. And you can start to see that sometimes micro adjustments in siting, moving it to one side of the street or another, can lead to substantially less impact on the grid. If it's one cable that's constrained and on the other side of the street, there's loads of capacity or one substation or another. And there's lots that, that you know, users of, of the platform and consumers can do to adjust either the site design, you know, maybe adding in flexibility or co-locating with other technologies, or just micro-adjusting the location of the site that can lead to much better outcomes for the network operator and also for consumers and really get things connected to the network much faster. Yeah, I can I can imagine that that kind of whole process of demystifying what's possible and demystifying the impact is is also it it's not only good for developing a project it's about speed of decision making quality of decision making isn't it and ultimately when you're trying to engage different parties who all have a slightly different view on what the point is or what the purpose of what they're doing is it's also keeping everyone engaged like if, if things are being permanently slowed down or put on stop that ultimately can fracture collaborations anyway can't it so so yeah fascinating to sort of imagine how how that kind of ability to model um model that kind of data really really has such a wide impact so absolutely yeah just understanding that that okay, I'll be delayed here, but I'll be delayed by this much. And understanding that critically before you've even applied to your network operator, because that's a process that can in itself take a month or more. Mm. And if you can have that information without going through the process, you're saving everybody time. Yeah. So probably the the most common or most yes, well, let's just stick with common. Most common question that we get from industrials and, and other parties is how are we going to quantify uh, both the CO2 impact of a given course of action, but maybe more importantly at the moment, the cost. Now, cost and funding, I mean, there, as you said at the beginning, there is no getting away from the, the size of investment that even relatively basic projects require. So what's what's your sort of thoughts around this? How, how do you talk clients through this kind of quantification process, both of what the CO2 impact of a given course of action is and the, the relevant costs. High quality assessment 
is what we try to recommend uh, our clients to do, whether they're corporate or municipalities or utilities. There's a lot of different tools and, and services out there that can help quantify carbon, and that's because the market's demanding it. Not all of them are of, of equal caliber. So you know, being sure that the provider you're going to is using high-quality data is really important. Um, in terms of what to do in that process, the first thing is to establish your baseline. So how much energy are we using now? How much CO2 are we producing now? And then to move on to how can we actually start reducing that and to build out a decarbonization pathway. And then at the end of that, you will have residual emissions. Some businesses may be quite substantial residual emissions that are hard to decarbonize. And that's where you then look at, okay, how can we buy high quality offsets or high quality uh, energy attribute certificates or GOs to reduce those, to, to, to offset, sorry, those final hard to decarbonize emissions. What we would typically do with a business or a municipality to take them through that process is to use uh, a model of, of grid uh, carbon. So we look at, in, in our business, we kind of unusually look at half hourly grid carbon. So the intensity, the carbon intensity of power at about 8,000 different nodes of the grid. So we'll be looking at carbon intensity, either local to your area or local to the business and use that to build up a 365 day, 24 seven, picture of your CO2 as it moves through the day and as it moves through the year. We'll then look at what would be optimum for decarbonizing in that area. So for example, if you have a very high spike in grid carbon around midday, you have an excellent opportunity for rooftop PV. Whereas if you maybe have a higher spike towards the evening or the latter half of the day, there's more of a business case for storage, potentially wind. There's a lot of different options that you can get to and you can really start to optimize the impact and ensure that you're getting the highest decarbonization benefit for your investment and for the finance that you can put into it. Um, that's sort of a high level overview of the sorts of things that are possible once you get into the data, but it, it is always possible to, to maximize that reduction in CO2 for the investment that you've got, which may not be massive, but there's always possible to make some substantial changes once you've got an idea of what that baseline is and what your opportunities are. Is it possible to use RESOP as, a, as an example? So is, is, you know, I'm not sure what stage you're in actually in terms of determining the optimum bundle of projects or investments, but is, is there a way of looking at that project and pulling out some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So across the local authorities, the, the municipalities that we're working with there, there are lots of different stages in their energy transition planning. But the first step for all of them has been to try and understand what that baseline is. So to do that, they and us have brought in data, for example, from Bayes, now Desnes, on, uh, on energy consumption across gas and electricity. And then we've brought in data or our data partners sometimes have brought in data around potential to decarbonize. And that's a sort of quite an airy phrase, but what, what we take that to mean is something quite concrete. It's at the building level across all residential buildings and all commercial buildings and all council-owned buildings. What's the opportunity for low carbon technology deployment and retrofit? So which buildings don't have insulation? Which buildings could have support heat pumps and which ones also crucially can't, perhaps because the site layout is just simply unsuitable. Which ones could support photovoltaics 
either on the roof or maybe in associated land parcels and what would be the generation capacity and making all of that data available as, as data layers that can be interrogated and queried starts to help build up a picture of what's possible. And that's something that we've worked on across the three local authorities I've mentioned, but perhaps particularly with Oxfordshire, looking at, for example, Oxford cities, current baseline and their opportunities to decarbonize and looking across, okay, what potential across the next 20 years do they have across different technologies, which enables planners to start to make decisions about how they're going to invest and how they can optimize deployment across retrofit heating and generation technologies. Okay, so that, that's how we start piecing together this, this concept of the, uh, the optimum bundle, then brings us back again to this issue of, of the money. So you then have this great idea, this great set of systemic pieces that you've put together into the ideal bundle. And of course, someone then goes, well, okay, but where's the money going to come from? And there is a gap between public intent and private financing. So I know that you are not the money woman in all of this, Lily, I, I get that. But I'm interested in what your perception is of what's the breakthrough going to be, do you think? What what needs to happen to really see that switch from enabling, you know, relatively complicated multi-party projects like the one you're talking about to then move more quickly, more seamlessly into the financing stage? There's a real gap. I think, between municipalities currently and their access to private financing, because ultimately the energy transition will have to pay its own way. And there is revenue to be made in that process in some areas more than others. But that's going to need to come in and there's going to need to be substantial private financing. At the moment, it's impossible to, to get financing for a whole systems energy transition, but it is possible to get financing for technology-specific projects heat networks, heat pump rollout, for example, much less so in retrofit, but potentially in future, we'll see that come in and, and we're going to need to see finance come in somewhere for that. But what can be done, I think, to support that access to private finance is to help public organisations understand the language that investors use and the business case that investors need to see around a project and a proposal before they actually come in and invest in it. Because if as a local authority you're used to responding to perhaps public finance, which a lot are, there's a big gap and there's a big jump to take when you start looking at, at private finance and private funding. And how are you seeing the, the clients that you're working with now? Like, are they, yeah, I guess, are they grabbing hold of that or, or is it still somewhere in the distance and not something that's perhaps, yeah, on, on the agenda right now? It's on the agenda but not at the scale it's going to need to be. It's something that is being talked about, but it's not something that is coming through at anything like the velocity that's going to be needed. Okay, well, thanks for taking us through both resort, but also those, those kind of key points really from working out what the right kind of approach across an integrated system are through to this whole issue of how do you get the right bundle together and then the right financing. I mean, there's a lot that still needs to to become habit, isn't there? There's a lot that needs to find a kind of set set pathway, I guess. But um, obviously we spoke, uh, I think it was about 18 months, two years ago, something like that, when Advanced Infrastructure was a much younger company. You've obviously come some way. So just as we now wrap up the conversation, tell me a bit about 
your plans? What's next for advanced infrastructure? And yeah, what, what do you see happening in the next sort of two to three years for you guys? Yeah, it has been a big change since we last spoke. I was remembering our conversation uh, last time when I think the company was about seven or eight people. Um, and we've now grown to 30, uh, split across a couple of different countries. So it's it's an exciting time in the business. In terms of our ambitions, we've been really glad to see that those problems that we picked up that motivated us to start the business, this issue of just basic data collection, basic collaboration, basic blockers that were stopping projects, that using digital solutions can alleviate that. And that's been really rewarding to see that assets and infrastructure actually go in the ground faster for corporates and municipalities and indeed utilities as well, because through the platform they can get visibility of, of where that investment in grid constraints is going to be needed. And our intention is to, to roll out this platform more broadly across the UK and in the EU and try and keep that cost as low as we possibly can for municipalities to access it and also to, to, to do the same for the private organisations that are working in this sector. And what would you say, so you've got an, an audience here, of whether it's investors, hopefully some municipalities, definitely industrials and utilities, what's the call to action from from your view of all the possibilities and challenges around the energy transition what is it that you would say to the audience to speak to two sectors we've maybe spoken about slightly less over the course of this podcast but who are really critical industrials and utilities utilities we talked about a bit so to touch on them first there's a huge need across electricity network operators to know where assets are going to connect in order to inform that future investment planning. Where's the network going to be upgraded and when? That's something that we're really keen to engage with more utilities on, both in the UK, but also outside in Europe, in Asia, in the US. We see a lot of these problems being replicated there. Massive grid constraints, difficulty planning, where connections are going to appear in the future. And there's a lot that can be done around using collaborative tools. So we're really keen to engage with those. The second sector that we maybe discussed slightly less that I mentioned, industrials. Industrials have a huge role to play in energy transition planning, and they often get missed out in local area energy planning. And, and local energy planning is specifically the term used to describe energy planning that, that is driven by municipalities and local authorities in the UK. But in reality, industrials and commercial businesses are really going to have a central role to play in how far a local region gets on that route to net zero. It's something we've worked to, to bring in. We've worked with heat and waste plants. We've worked with large energy consumers to bring them in to start sharing their decarbonization objectives, their challenges with their local municipality and, and start figuring out ways they can work together to make it easier to decarbonize, to make it easier to get in, say, the EV infrastructure needed to transition a corporate fleet from where they are now to either EVs or who knows, maybe in the future, hydrogen. And it's really important that that, that interaction happens. So we do work with municipalities, but we also work with corporates because the way we see it, they're really critical to that decarbonization effort. Even for industries that are hard to decarbonize, there's still a lot that can be achieved through that engagement and whole systems collaboration across private sector and public. Great. Well, I mean, always a pleasure to talk to you, Lily. I think it's been really fascinating to see how you and the team 
yeah have scaled and and also how the product is maturing and, and shifting as well and i'm sure there's a lot in what we've talked about today both in terms of access to good data collaborative environments and the ability to model together i think there's a lot there that will benefit both industry uh, public sector as, as well as the utilities landscape so thank you very much for joining us thank you very much for having me alex great to be back at jano media we recognize that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.